Truth Espresso, episode 259. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, for yet another episode of Truth Espresso. And just as a heads up, my wife and I are going to have some fairly busy weekends for several weeks, so it depends what we're going to be able to do as far as being able to arrange the usual Monday episodes where we're both discussing a topic, where we've studied some notes together and stuff. And so, because this weekend, as I'm recording, we're going to be out of town doing some ministry stuff I thought I would take an episode that I was originally going to do as part of my series that I'm doing on Truth Espresso Express about the hardest verses in the Bible and, and just record that for this Monday episode. And so the series that I've been doing on Truth Espresso Express for the hardest verses in the Bible comes from an article addressed to Christian writers. This is from faithwriters.com. And so we've talked about some of what this uh, writer presented as some of the hardest verses in Scripture. Now, what I want to get to is what the writer considers the hardest verse in the Bible to discuss. And so that ought to make a very interesting episode. Let's tackle what someone opines as the hardest verse in the Bible. If you're going to address that, especially as a Christian writer, and of course, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian writer. It matters if you're a Christian, you need to be able to give answers and be able to at least try your best, if not to say that you don't know the answer, you'd get back, you'd study it, but let's tackle what this Christian writer considers the hardest verse in the Bible. So, what is the hardest verse in the Bible, at least according to some? That is Mark 13.32. So, the Christian writer presents Mark 13.32, where Jesus says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So, yes, as we read this verse, it immediately brings some questions to our minds because we're thinking about who's saying it, and then we're thinking about, well, why would he say that the Son, referring to himself personally, does not know something? Because isn't the orthodox position of Christianity, historically speaking, the doctrine of the Trinity. And if the doctrine of the Trinity is true, then also Jesus Christ is God incarnate, the Son of God, or God the Son, who took on flesh. And if he's God the Son, why would he not know something here? Why would he not know the timing of his second coming? Now, there have been solutions and explanations and commentaries proposed in this verse. And so I want to get to those and then consider which one or possibly even which two would be considered the best explanations. 
Because as we read this verse, let's just ask the question, does this verse imply that there is division of knowledge within the Trinity? In other words, is God kind of made up of three parts where each person shares a part and each person of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has their own knowledge? Now, sometimes people will ascribe different things to each person because we recognize with the doctrine of the Trinity, we understand the ontological Trinity, the nature of God. So the ontological Trinity means that the three persons exhaustively share the one being of God. All three of them are co-equal and co-eternal. Therefore, they are all the same in that aspect. They are different persons, but the nature that they share is the same one nature. They don't divide that nature up into parts. Each one of them is not one-third God, but yet there are three distinct persons. It's not one person putting on three different masks like uh, the modalists would teach, so that the doctrine of the Trinity, what we call the ontological Trinity, is to understand that God is one nature, one being, and three persons, and each of these persons are co-equal, co-eternal. They all share the entire nature. They don't share it as in parts. Each one of them possesses the entire nature as his nature. So, if Jesus is saying that the Son doesn't know something, namely the timing of his second coming, then is knowledge, is divine knowledge something that you would divide up between the persons? Maybe knowledge resides in the person and not in the nature. We'll get to that a little bit here, but it makes us ask the question, does each person know different things as being a distinct person, or do they share the knowledge such that the knowledge is a component of the nature? Or we could ask the question, are we wrong about Jesus being God such that the Arians you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses of today, or the Socinians, those who believe that Jesus was just a human being whose conscious existence began at his uh, conception in the womb of Mary, that ontologically he's just a human. Are either of them right that Jesus is not God? That's how we explain how Jesus could not know something because he's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things that are knowable or all things that God would know. Another proposed explanation is maybe Jesus lost some of his divine attributes or some of his knowledge via the Incarnation. Maybe Jesus was uh, eternally God, but then via the Incarnation, he, by humbling himself, as we see in Philippians chapter 2, it uses the word kenosis, ekenosen, when he emptied himself, did he empty himself of some of his divine attributes, such as divine knowledge? And yeah, I know people who believe this, and we call this kenoticism, or the kenotic theory, or the kenosis theory. This ultimately results in some form of monophysitism, or one nature, that Jesus didn't really have two complete natures, divine and human, but that he had one nature, it's kind of like a human nature and a divine nature mixed together. Now, some canonicists might just try to say, well, I believe he has two natures, but the divine nature that he possessed, because the incarnation would force it on him, he had to kind of reduce his divine nature to do so. 
or somehow he had to give up the possession of certain divine attributes. But then that raises the question, if you believe the doctrine of the Trinity and you believe in the nature of God, that it's ultimate and that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three persons share the one nature, then what happens to the other persons if the Son could somehow give up certain divine attributes? Are we really talking about the full nature, or are we back to a tripartite God? Canonicism has its own problems because then it seems to divide up the nature of God or to make Jesus into some kind of demigod or something like that. So we don't want to compromise the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity or the incarnation, what we call the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ is one person with two full natures, as the Creed of Chalcedon says that they're not reduced, not intermixed, and so on like that. So what are some proposed solutions that at least attempt to respect the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the incarnation? Well, the first solution is that the phrase, neither the Son, was added in Mark. Now, I'm not saying that this is a ideal solution. Of course, those of us who would believe that the scriptures that we have are the originals intact, that we don't have anything that was added into what we have or removed that's not attested in manuscripts. We need the manuscript evidence to show that we do indeed have God's word intact. The argument that neither the Son was added in Mark is that there's a parallel passage in Matthew 24.36. And Matthew 24.36 says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So it's communicating the same thing, that the Father is the one who alone knows, but it doesn't have the phrase, neither the Son. And so some text critics might propose that neither the Son was added in some manuscript of Mark and it made its way into our modern Bibles, including the King James Version of the Bible, but that perhaps that phrase wasn't in the original. However, there is no hard evidence that this is the case. It's merely speculation of the manuscript evidence that we have. We don't see anything that would in any way show us that somehow the phrase was added by having manuscripts that would have it not present in Mark. And so that's just really not a viable explanation. I've seen some commentators mention that argument, but say that it should be there, of course, and there's no evidence from manuscripts that it was added. And so, yes, we need to accept that the phrase, neither the Son, is indeed authentic and is originally and currently in Mark 13.32. So what about another argument? about how to understand the verse given that the phrase neither the son is present. Well, some tries to explain the verse that when it says that the son doesn't know, that the word doesn't really mean what we would take it to mean at face value. So he's saying that the statement from Jesus is about proclaiming an event, not knowledge of the event. So, the argument that the Greek word for know, I do, can also semantically mean to make known, so to proclaim or make known. 
rather than that Jesus is knowing he's making known. So he's basically saying it's not going to be the angels that make the second coming known to the world. And it's not going to be the son himself, but it's going to be the father, kind of like at Jesus' baptism, where you have the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased, so that it would be the father who's in charge of somehow, whether audibly or whatever, making known the event of the second coming, and it's not Jesus proclaiming it of himself. So, hey, maybe that's possible. But maybe there are other explanations because I think that's still a little bit of wishful thinking in terms of this word I do. I know the example of it is 1 Corinthians 2 2, where the Apostle Paul says, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that could mean that Paul, when he went to the Corinthians, he didn't want to know anything about what they believed as far as their personal squabbles, but just that they believed that Jesus was the Christ and that he was crucified. But a lot of commentaries will understand this word Ido or know here to mean that when Paul was there, he determined not to make known to them anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so it's possible that that's what that means, and that's talking about proclaiming or making known rather than Jesus himself knowing about. We can't dismiss that, but I still think it's just not really a strong hill to stand on for this. Now let's look at a third explanation. The third explanation has to do with the doctrine of the hypostatic union itself. And so we could get tripped up on really misthinking the incarnation. And sometimes we might be tempted to put on our Gnostic blinders and feel like Jesus is just God walking around in a body and Jesus is pretending to act human, but he doesn't really have human limitations. He constantly has all this knowledge as the God-man even as the human aspect, just knowing absolutely everything all the time. And so he's kind of just walking around, talking with people and pretending to have human limitations. But we have to understand when we think about the doctrine, the incarnation, the hypostatic union, that Jesus is one person with two full and distinct natures. And if he has those two natures, he has the fullness of each of them, Each of those natures are fully intact, and we recognize that the human nature itself has the limitations of a human being. And so we can understand from this verse, by thinking about the fullness of the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus, as pertaining to his humanity, might not know something. Now, you might be shocked hearing that, but hear me out as we really look into the doctrine of the hypostatic union, even look at other verses with which we might be familiar and to think, well, if that's true, then this can also be true. So, a verse with which we all are familiar, and sometimes we can read this and we don't even think about what this could trigger for us, like Mark thirteen thirty two does. 
So Luke 2.52 is often familiar when we read the Christmas story. And if we continue to read on down, we see that it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So when we read that, we think, okay, we just read about Jesus as a baby, his birth story and dedication and and all that. And now we have a verse talking about, hey, Jesus grew up, of course. But, you know, do we focus on it enough when we see that it says, and Jesus increased in wisdom. So not only did the human Jesus increase in stature, he grew up some, he also increased in wisdom. Now, how can that be if he's God? Well, just as any other human, which Jesus would be fully human if he's the God-man, one person with two full natures, the person of Jesus expressed through the human nature, that human would grow just as the human Jesus grows, also the human Jesus would be taught and acquire knowledge. We need to remember, Jesus became a carpenter, or, you know, if you want to push that a little bit, stone cutter, whatever you believe about that. He didn't just start crafting things and cutting things as a baby, or he didn't just say, yeah, yeah, I know how to do all this, even in my human nature. Jesus was taught how to do that. And Jesus increased in wisdom. We can't deny what Luke 2.52 says. So Jesus learned things as a child in school. He learned things. He studied the Tanakh, the Torah, the Navim, the Ketuvim, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Jesus studied that. Sure, he confounded the doctors. He was a wise child as the God-man, as the divine nature would be permitted according to the divine plan to influence the human nature of Jesus and reveal things to the human nature of Jesus. We can explain his wisdom that way, but the human nature still has to retain being the human nature and not be confounded with the divine nature, not be completely overtaken by the divine nature so that Jesus is not feigning humanity. He really had human limitations, albeit without sin, of course. But just as he had human limitations that he had to walk around, he had to wash his feet, he had to grow up, he also increased in wisdom and knowledge. So if Jesus as God incarnate can increase in wisdom, as Luke 2.52 says, As man, as he was growing up, why can't he not know something like the timing of a particular event, such as the second coming, as man? My name is Andy Olson, and I want to tell you about Echozoi Radio. Echozoi Radio is a podcast outreach of Echozoi Ministries. Every month I find a knowledgeable guest to talk about an important and interesting topic that affects the church today. We carefully balance the discussions of positive, God-glorifying doctrines of Orthodox Christianity from a mostly Reformed point of view with exposés of heresy, false teaching, and poor practice that goes on throughout the church today. You can find us at echozoe.com. That's E-C-H-O-Z-O-E dot com. Now, some things Jesus knew as an example of his divine nature that we could see in the Gospel accounts For instance, the end of John chapter 2 says that Jesus knew all men and that he knew what was in man. Also, John 6.64 says that Jesus knew from the beginning who would believe and who would betray him. 
And when Jesus asked Peter the third time in John chapter 21, do you love me? You know, the whole agape phileo exchange there or agapao phileo. (laughs) Peter says, you know all things, you know I love you. And in Revelation 2.23, we see that the letter written to the church is from the Son of God explicitly. So the Son of God says that he is the one who searches the reins and the hearts and will reward everyone according to their works. So that also sounds like something a divine person would say, just as God says in the Old Testament. Jesus also said that the Father committed all judgment to the Son— and that the Son will not judge imperfectly. So in John chapter 5, Jesus says that the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Well, the Son had better be perfect and knowledgeable and not let any misdeed go unpunished or unrewarded. And so the Father has committed all judgment to the Son, and the Father is not going to fail by committing it to a a creature who could fail. And so Jesus, as the God-man, the Son of God incarnate, the Son of God judges everyone perfectly, knows the thoughts and intents of the heart via the divine nature. So Jesus must know all works that everyone has done to reward accordingly, that via his divinity. Now let's ask the question as we're thinking about the two natures of Jesus. So where does knowledge reside? Is it the person who possesses the knowledge or is it the nature that possesses the knowledge? Because we're talking about Jesus being one person with two natures. Now let's look at the human nature. Jesus had a full human nature. It wasn't compromised by him also possessing the full divine nature. In the human nature, knowledge resides in the brain. We can verify this with science. In other words, knowledge then is a component of the human nature. Our bodies are part of our human nature. And knowledge stored in electrical impulses in the brain means that our knowledge as humans is a component of our nature. And of course, the brain has limited capacity and must acquire knowledge over time. And Jesus, being incarnate with a full human nature, he had to make full use of that human nature, such as acquiring knowledge in his human brain the way humans acquire knowledge. So we could see how a human brain obtains and stores knowledge, like how a computer hard drive obtains and stores data. Since Jesus is one person with two natures, divine and human, his human nature would have whatever knowledge he obtained through the mechanism of human experience, and of course, whatever God would choose to communicate via the divine nature. So just as God would give prophetic knowledge and speak it or reveal it somehow to prophets, Jesus being the God-man, God incarnate, you know, he had two full natures, So whatever would be purposed in God's divine plan for the incarnation and for Jesus to know as the God-man, for him to know in his humanity, the divine nature could reveal that. So the divine nature could definitely reveal and prove that Jesus is fully divine by him knowing the thoughts and intents of people's hearts, but also the divine nature could just 
not reveal across to the human nature certain things, such as the timing of the second coming, and of course anything about reality that Jesus, via his human nature, would have to learn through growing and studying and so on. When we think about it, there really is no problem, because if we're going to make a problem of Mark 13, 32, with the Son not knowing the timing of his second coming, shouldn't we really have an issue with Luke 2, 52? You might ask, well, what about, is this really talking about, is it explicit talking about the human nature here? Is it talking about the divine nature? Like, what about the kenosis advocates who would say that Jesus lacked something or gave up certain divine attributes? And that, well, he's talking about himself as the Son, as in God the Son, because he does say neither the Son. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, we would have to make some assumptions there, but we could look at a little bit of the context. So when Jesus mentioned the Son before verse 32, it was last mentioned in verse 26, when he said, And then shall ye see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So he's talking about his second coming, but then he says, Of that day and hour knows no man, or not the angels in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Jesus' last mention of the Son refers to when he says the Son of Man. Now, not to incur the criticism of Dr. James White, who points out that Son of Man doesn't refer to his human nature, and Son of God doesn't refer to his divine nature, I don't want to be criticized for that. That's not what I'm saying. Because the Son of Man is mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. He's definitely a divine figure who receives divine worship there. But I've explained that from what I can understand from Jesus' usage of these terms, my explanation of the title Son of God and Son of Man are like this. Son of God emphasizes the fact that this human is also God. So when Jesus says Son of God of himself, he's saying, yes, I am human, but I'm also divine. And that the title Son of Man is a reference to the fact that, yes, as God, he is also fully man. Now, I did kind of address this topic a little bit, and I'll provide a link to it in the show notes. I talked about it in my superhero series that I did over a year ago, where I was asking the question, is Jesus like, and insert your favorite superhero here. So we had Superman and Batman and all kinds of cool superheroes to compare to wrong ideas about Jesus and church history. Now, in the 7th century, you had what was called the monothelite controversy or monothelitism. Monothelitism, the 7th century heresy, asserted that the capacity of the will resides entirely in the person and not the nature, and that therefore Jesus would have one will. So the word mono meaning one and thelos meaning will. So monothelitism is the teaching that Jesus has one will, and the contention is that the will is a component of the person and not the nature. Uh, But then the orthodox position, as expressed in Constantinople III, is called diothelitism, or two wills. 
So the controversy wasn't just over the number of wills, but why would there be one will or two wills? So diothelitism, the orthodox position, teaches that the capacity to will is a component of the nature. Thus, Jesus has two wills because he has two natures. So the capacity to will resides in the nature, but the actualized will, what you actually do with the will, how you utilize it, is through the person. So Jesus has two wills, each one corresponding to his two natures, but as he thinks and acts, you would end up with one actualized will. And if you want to understand that a little bit fully, you can look at the episodes that I will link to in the show notes. Is Jesus like Dr. Octopus? And I did three episodes on that, so I would highly recommend that you listen to all three of those to get a full picture of the controversy in the 7th century, the history, and then also my explanations for why monothelitism doesn't work and my illustrations about bank accounts and transactions and stuff. So, understanding the doctrine of the hypostatic union, Mark 13.32 doesn't have to be a problem. Now, this is not the last explanation for this verse, because there is also a very good explanation. Even if Mark 13.32 can be adequately explained by simply understanding what the orthodox position of the hypostatic union, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, entails... There's still yet another good explanation that actually comes from Jewish culture that could be really the final explanation of this verse. Like, perhaps we don't even have to entertain anything preceding this one. So, explanation number four is that what Jesus said in Mark 13.32 is language about Jewish wedding customs. In Galilean uh, Judaism, there were six stages of the wedding custom. The final one is called the Nisuin, in which the groom's father plans the day and the hour in which he will then tell his son to go and get the bride in return. So the son doesn't know when this is going to happen. The bride doesn't know. None of the wedding party knows. But the father <laughs> knows. Then the, the father, the groom knows. And then he tells his son to go get the bride and will do the ceremony. So the son and the bride, of course, know the season of the wedding. They're already getting ready for it. But neither of them know the day or the hour when the son's father will grant the son to go get the bride. So this is likely the process of the wedding at Cana of Galilee where Jesus did his first miracle. And he turned the water into wine, if you remember, in John chapter 2. So if this is what one of those weddings were, I think it's very likely the wedding feast would have lasted a week. It was a seven-day festival. And, and so on one of the days, Jesus was there at the wedding festival and he turned the water into wine. And this was a Galilean wedding that would have had as a component the father telling the son to go get the bride but we don't see wedding in particular mentioned, so why would this be an explanation in Mark 13 or Matthew 24? Well, Jesus, in these chapters, talk about things that can kind of allude to that. He talks about the time being near. He mentions summer is near. He also uses a phrase, it is nigh even at the doors. 
So he talks about things being near. He talks about getting ready, preparing. You don't know the day or the hour when these things will happen. Jesus talks about the parable, the fig tree. He talks about the Son of Man is like a man taking a far journey, left his house. He commanded the porter to watch. He says to his disciples, watch, therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes at even or midnight or at the cock crowing in the morning, lest coming suddenly find you sleeping. He tells everyone to watch. And so this language, if he's not saying it's about wedding, it's the same type of awareness of the custom of a wedding. And so the language that Jesus says in this verse shows that he's alluding to the wedding custom, the wedding feast, the uh, final phase of the wedding custom, the Nisween. So I'd like to also play a little clip that I had from episode 200 of Truth Espresso. This is where I interviewed Andrew Rappaport, the head of Striving for Eternity Ministries and the Christian podcast community of which Truth Espresso is a member podcast. And he explained this viewpoint when he was participating in a, a conference with Dr. James White. And so after the conference, they talked about things and Andrew Rappaport presented this to Dr. James White, and he told me about that on this episode of Truth Espresso. So I'd like to play that clip for you. And then when you you encounter in your ministry some, like maybe Jewish scholars who would challenge you on the interpretation of some things. Yeah, that that happened this weekend over lunch. So we got into a discussion. I I don't know if you know Dr. James White, but... yes. (laughs) <laughs> so we were at a pastor's house, we're sitting down, and he had just done a debate on not really King James, but Texas Receptus, which is what the King James is based on. And we're at the pastor's house, the pastor's asking him questions. And one of the things he brought up is out of Matthew, and it's also in Mark, where Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour, only the Father knows. And we were getting into the discussion there, and there were some other things going on that were being discussed as far as theology and the simplicity of God, things like that. And we're discussing this, and he brings up this passage, and he's making the emphasis on the word only. And so I I said, you know, well, I, I have a little bit of a different take on that. And so Dr. White, being funny as he could be, just turns and says, okay, what heresy do you have for us? And uh, so, so I just explained to him that, you know, hearing that passage growing up, I knew it as an idiom for marriage, that it was when a father would tell the son to go get your bride, the son doesn't know the day or the hour he's getting married, only the father knows. That's the idea of it. So you live as if every moment is that time. And so I grew up with hearing the idiom. And I read it as an idiom. And Dr. White, I guess, looked at it and was like, you know, I was expecting him to give some argument back. And he just looked and was like, well, I never heard that before. <laughs> and it, there's, it was oh, like, you know, he asked, well, how can you date? And I couldn't, I don't know the, the history. I don't know where the origin, like how far back does it date? And that's what he asked. I did try looking in the Talmud to see if I could find it there. But, you know, I, don't, I can't find the origin of it. But I remember hearing it. And the idea of it is you live expectantly. Uh, I would think it goes back to sometime, you know, first century or beyond where this was part of the marriage, way marriages were done when they were arranged and whatnot. So, uh, but we would still hear it sometimes today. So, yeah, that, we got into a, a discussion <laughs> where my background did kind of help out maybe. 
Well, I hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Truth Espresso, and I hope that this discussion of Mark 13, 32 has been helpful, that if you've had any problems with that verse, that I'm not saying that we can't struggle with some of these verses, but we can also recognize that they're perfectly reasonable, orthodox, and historical and customary explanations of the challenges of these verses, and that so we don't have to be afraid of a verse like Mark 13:32 and if it is indeed the hardest verse in the Bible well then we've got good things to look forward to perhaps we have given some good answers to the arguably most difficult verse in the Bible and so stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso and God bless Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.